it's Loom Group's Andrea Lay, Backview's Melissa Burdick, the wizard of Woodland Hills Shree, and I'm PVSB from Flywheel, a division of Omnicom, and I'm coming to you today from the Catskills. Be playing Heckinger's Tuesdays and Thursdays. Before we get to the CPG Guys episode you've downloaded, it's the week of May 6th, and it's time for the Fresh Four, for curated news stories from the past week. We find them dependably intriguing. We hope you do too. We're brought to you through our partnership with Retail Wit, your one-stop shop for retail industry intelligence news, retailwit.com. It's retail right now. Over to you, Shree. In case you're wondering what this background is, I'm at, I'm at my father-in-law's house all the way in Chennai, India for the next couple of weeks. So what's the message of the week? Kroger Precision Marketing strikes a partnership with none other than Yahoo DSP. So Yahoo DSP advertisers now have access to KPM's audiences for both reach and measurement. Partnership marks KPM's second DSP partnership since last fall and ushers in a new focus on commerce media for Yahoo advertising in particular. Collaborations like this one will define the next phase of growth in retail media as retailers recognize the limitations of monetization on their own digital properties and seek incremental growth by expanding offsite. This is said by Sara Marzano, principal analyst at eMarketer. For advertisers, the delayed but still impending deprecation of third-party cookies, which is now on its way, continues to underpin every decision regarding digital advertising dollars. So solutions that safeguard their investments against that hold increasing appeal. Over to you, Andrea. Hello, Fresh 4 listeners. Walmart adds a new grocery line to its private brand's portfolio. Walmart has announced a new private label grocery brand called Better Goods. The line includes 300 items spanning categories such as frozen, dairy, snacks, beverages, pasta, soups, coffee, and chocolate. With most items priced under $5, Better Goods focuses on three key components, culinary experiences, plant-based, and made without. The retailer said Better Goods marks not only its largest private food brand launch in two decades, but also its fastest grocery brand brought to market. Over to you, Melissa. Thanks, Andrea. Uh, so, Savemark companies roll out in-store retail media networks. It's not enough that we have online. Now we're moving to in-store retail media networks. The Savemark companies plans to roll out in-store connect, an in-store retail media network powered by Quad Graphics Inc. To start, 16 of the grocery company stores will have digital screens, kiosks, end caps, shelf screens, and vertical banners throughout, allowing CPG partners to showcase promotions, product information, and recommendations to shoppers. The program will eventually roll out to all the Savemark companies, approximately 200 stores. This is Savemark's latest retail media effort, coming almost a year after a launch of its own retail media network. Over to you, Peter. Thanks, Melissa. Rite Aid expands Uber Eats' partnership for alcohol delivery in eight states. Nearly 1,000 Rite Aid stores will now offer alcohol delivery via retailers' expanded partnership with Uber Eats. Customers of legal drinking aid can get delivery from select stores in California, Idaho, Michigan, New York, Ohio, Oregon, Virginia, and Washington. Quote, our collaboration and trusted partnership with Uber Eats underscores our commitment to meet the evolving needs of our customers and providing a seamless digital shopping experience complements their busy lives, unquote, said Jeannie Walden, Senior Vice President and Chief Marketing Officer at Rite Aid, the U.S.'s third largest pharmacy retailer. That's it for the Fresh Four. Now on to the CPG Guys episode that you've downloaded. Welcome to another episode of Consumer Engagement in an Omnichannel World. Our co-hosts, Sri Rajgopalan and Peter V.S. Bond, 
explore how brands and retailers engage with consumers in-store, online, and everywhere in between. And now, here's Shreem. Hi, everybody. I'm Peter V.S. Bond, the co-host of Consumer Engagement and Omnichannel World. I'm, as always, joined by my uh, co-host, Sri Raj Gopalan. We are in episode two of a six-part series called uh, Living in an Omnichannel World. We are joined by our very special guest, Brian Gildenberg from Omnicom. Uh, Brian, tell us uh, a little bit about yourself, and then we'll get right into the podcast. Sure, and uh, good to see you guys again, and thanks for the invite. Uh, I'm Brian Gildenberg, uh, currently the SVP of Commerce for the Omnicom Retail Group, a collection of agencies that specialize in retail in all of its forms, physical, digital, um, et cetera. Um, the agencies you probably know better by their trading names, which are Tracy Locke, uh, the Integer Group, uh, TMA, TPN, and uh, Haygarth. Uh, prior to that, for a very long time, I was the uh, head of retail research at, uh, at Kantar. And uh, for, the, for those of you who've seen me before, it's almost certainly in that role. But, uh, but oversaw was a big part of Kantar's retail research team for about 23 years. Uh, thank you for that, Brian. Without being too much of a fanboy, I'll mention that I was a devotee of your uh, your previous podcast. So we're very happy to have you on this show. Well, there you go. It's good to it's good to get back to talking into a microphone again. Although although it's disconcerting doing it with other people. <laughs> All right, let's jump right into it. Our topic today is uh, Amazon's role in omnichannel transformation. Uh, what is Amazon doing to influence e-commerce? And my very first question is. Should Amazon even be considered an omni-channel retailer, and does it even matter? Um, I'm not sure it matters, but sure, why not? Um, I think in reality, if you, if I were forced to write this down as the my final answer on who wants to be a millionaire, I would probably describe Amazon as a as an e-commerce retailer that happens to run a brick and mortar retail chain, um, as well as a curiosity shop of retail formats that they built on their own. Um, I do think that Whole Foods is move. I think Whole Foods is becoming a more omnichannel retailer through both home delivery and click and collect, and that might be the way I would probably describe it best. Which is that Amazon, which is a pretty much pure play e-commerce player, is starting to turn Whole Foods into an omnichannel food retailer. Very good. You know, Brian, if you are the industry giant and heavyweight in supply chain, which is arguably one of Amazon's strength, you know, comparable to Walmart. Some days I don't know which one's better but clearly they're one, two of the industrial ones. <laughs> Why go through this exercise of dabbling in an in-store business model and then let it run separately as an omni-channel? Why even do this in the first place? I think it's pretty simple. Um, the, and you can't sell food without a distribution network that gets food relatively close to American homes and allows a disproportionate number of Americans, the opportunity to pick that food up rather than have it delivered. Um, you know, in the, in the end, the reason they're doing this, if I had, you know, four words to answer it is because ice cream melts. Um, and uh, you can't do a home delivery model in American grocery, given how temperature variant the country is, leaving stuff on people's doorsteps and hoping that'll work. Um, and then expecting Americans to be home to receive groceries that obviously, become a little easier to imagine that in the last few months. But uh, assuming the world gets back to something like what it used to be like, home delivery in America just isn't that, isn't that convenient. I mean, you know, America is a car-based convenience country. 
We invented the drive-through movie. We invented the drive-through wedding. And Louisiana, God bless it, has a drive-through daiquiri hut, right? So, so the notion that people aren't going to want to drive to get their groceries as a primary means of convenience just seems really misguided. And I think deeply influenced by the fact that most of the people that write about e-commerce for a living live in cities and that most of the people that buy food don't. So uh, and I think that's always been a misalignment in terms of what actually, what actual Americans with kids who live in suburbs find to be convenient, which is not trying to identify a two hour window, which I'm gonna be home on a Saturday, but rather I know when I'm driving my car past someplace, I can pick up groceries. I think Amazon had to get involved in a retail business in order to sell food effectively in the United States. Uh so, Brian, are there any other chinks in uh, Amazon's omni-channel uh, e-commerce armor? And uh, are they going to be able to fix those? Um, sure. Um, yeah, I think in the, I, I mean, I think in the end, um, you know, the biggest challenge Amazon has is selling more than one item at a time. I mean, they're, they're, they're just not great at it. Um, you know, it takes 10.0 times longer to buy 10 things on Amazon than it does to buy one. And, um until that's different, they're gonna struggle in shopping occasions where buying more than one thing is the object. Um, that's largely grocery shopping, uh, but it's also, as we talked about in the last podcast, it's seasonal shopping as well. And this is one of the reasons why Amazon tends to underperform brick and mortar retailers in key seasonal moments, because it's just easier to go to Target and get everything you need for the summertime, rather than trying to figure out how to do it one item at a time on Amazon, that's annoying. Um, so I would say that basically the chink in Amazon's armor is really simple. It's two items. Um, and, uh, look, they're a smart company. They're going to figure this out eventually, but, but, um, the brick and mortar retailers that can figure out how to sell you more than one thing and put value behind that proposition are going to do pretty well versus Amazon. And I think a lot of that, a lot of that is uh, food retailer. The, the other area for Amazon that continues to be a challenge is any category like apparel that requires um, intelligent curation to be sold effectively. Those are the two big ones. So one item at a time in intelligent curation. Amazon's not particularly great at either of those. So Brian, on one hand, having spent 25 years in CPG, I couldn't agree more with you that the entire consumer goods industry's brands have been curated over the course of time, anchored on a PNL that actually depends on being successful if it's part of a basket behavior. Yeah. Enough consumer studies have been put out over this in over a century, perhaps, and enough strap plans and JBPs have been written based on basket behavior, even though calculations are done at an item level, it's all based on basket behavior. And clearly, Amazon is quite the opposite with a weak uh, user experience at best for basket level shopping. While I say that, Brian, I'm also fully aware that if Amazon wasn't in the ecosystem with the clout and weight that it has, retail's transformation towards digital ecosystems would not be happening at any pace we've experienced in the last seven to 10 years. So what is this spark and how has Amazon forced that retail transformation? If despite being the master of individual purchases only? Well, I think, um, I mean, I think in the end, you know, I think, Shree, this is one of many things you and I have talked about before. Um, you know, I'm pretty sure Amazon would be the first to tell you that if they hadn't stumbled into, um, you know, something about their proposition that made them Earth's most customer-centric company, they wouldn't have gotten anywhere. 
I think they wandered into a unique confluence of the advancement of digital technology and the exhaustion of the American mom. So, uh, you know, we talked about this a lot when I was at Cantar about how as the age of motherhood goes up and the busyness of parenting increases, um, you know, mom's just too tired to go shopping. And when, you know, at 9.30 at night, phone open, semi-conscious on the couch, mom discovered that through Prime, she could buy stuff and get it delivered to her house in one day or two for free. Um, that's the need state they're solving for. You know, and it's really not about money per se. And I'm not even sure time's the best way to think about it. What Amazon has done, they've solved the American energy crisis. Um, you know, particularly the energy crisis of the American mom in a, in a way just fundamentally different than anybody who tried to solve it before. So if I'm spending five minutes to buy seven things on Amazon, that would have taken me two minutes in Target. If I'm doing that sitting on my couch watching Chopped, that's a win, right? I mean, rather than, rather than hauling myself to Target at 9.30 at night. That's the, I think that's the key. And you get a tasty treat to eat at the end. Sure, yes. Well, you get to, you get to watch other people eat a tasty treat, sure. Anytime I get to see my friend Amanda Freitag on Chopped, I consider that a win just nice. itself. But Nice, there um, you go. But um, so I, I just saw that Instacart introduced a new ad network. So my question is, uh, what's the role of digital media in this journey? And is it transforming rapidly because of omnichannel transformation? Uh, well, yeah, I think it is transforming a fair amount. And uh, I mean, I think the role of digital media, uh, I think the role of digital media, and I guess I'd break this up into two things. One, I think the question you're trying to get at, without putting words in your mouth, um, is digital retail media, right? So, so what would, uh, as opposed to digital media in general, um, I think the role of retail media is, one, it's varied right now. So if you look at like what Walmart, Target, Kroger are trying to do as the three biggest non-Amazon players in the ecosystem, they're trying to do pretty different things, right? So, you know, Walmart's trying to create its version of Amazon. Target's really selling you access to its guests through its audience network. Um, and Kroger's really trying to sell you the ability to effectively measure campaigns based on a loyalty card data system they've had before. So I think it's still pretty nascent um, in terms of what that does. I would say in the end, I think that retail media is gonna play a very specific role occupying a space between, um, between sort of brand consideration and brand conversion, probably the best way to put it, or demand creation and demand conversion. And I, you know, I think that's what, it, that's the job that it was kind of put on this earth to do. So, um, so it'll be interesting to see how those media platforms evolve and what they do. But yeah, I think they're going to be, they're going to be a valuable bridge between what used to be called brand marketing and what used to be called trade marketing, if, uh, if done right. You know, folks, media is such a big topic and going through such radical transformation in the industry yeah. because of digital that we're going to dedicate a whole episode to media. We're actually going to call it media 2020 and it'll be episode five of this six part series or episode 11 in the Sri and PVSP series. And we'll be hitting up stuff such as why is this important and who's even answering the dirty question, who should be paying for the media. So we'll get to that, but thank you. Right. I'm going to switch to a completely different area in the ecosystem of what's required for transformation towards a digital retailing um, future. And that simple one, Brian, is, of course, we know Amazon is the heavyweight of supply chain. 
for sure, especially when it comes to each's delivery and each's purchasing and satisfaction. But for sure, they have really uh, created some head scratchers for manufacturers and brands when it comes to their own supply chain ecosystem. Do you see manufacturers changing and twisting to meet Amazon's needs? Everything from packaging to how many you put in a case pack, how do you do chargebacks, which are radically different on Amazon? Just the whole ecosystem. Do you see that changing? Sure. <laughs> what what else are you gonna do, right? I mean, um, you know, and uh, you know, I'm I'm old I'm old enough to remember the conversations that people were having, especially in the grocery industry, about whether the grocery industry would ever change because Walmart wanted to sell groceries differently than than uh, than Kroger or Albertsons did. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, if you <laughs> sell something through the largest customer, in the, one of the two largest customers in the country, yes, you have to change your systems to do it. Um, you know, you know, Moses didn't wander down from a tablet and a mountain and have thou shalt be able to achieve the lowest possible cost per unit through mass production and highly efficient scaled logistics on a, you know, as one of the things. I mean, that was a unique window in time. That's how Walmart created a point of difference. And that the ecosystem that could built behind Walmart was one that emphasized low unit cost over flexibility and scale over batch processing. And that's all got to get unwound if the retailer that's going to drive most of the growth in the future isn't interested in that. So, um, you know, that's, and in the same way that Walmart wasn't interested in any of the allowance-based you know, goofy discounting that the supermarket industry used and all that stuff went away too. So yeah, it'll change. Uh, that's very helpful. Getting on that track of the retailer side of the ecosystem, putting Amazon and, and Walmart aside, are, are there some big ecosystem changes you've seen from kind of the, everybody else from a Target to a Meyer to a Publix to a shoe carnival to a whoever? What are what are we seeing? Are the, the some of the big ecosystem changes they've had to? Well, let's talk. Let, let's talk a lot about shoe carnival. Um, so uh, so as I guess some some good stuff happening there. Well, look, I mean, yeah, I think that the easiest way to think about this is that if you think about the assets that are involved in the delivery of value to a shopper from a retailer, it's just those assets are the role of those assets is is changing. So. You know, stores are going to be DCs as well as stores. DCs are going to be direct ship centers as well as DCs. Um, you know, you're going to have, um, you know, you're going to have the store as a returns platform, not just a selling platform. Um, the store is going to act as a provider of other services that aren't retail centric. So if you just look at Walgreens right now in terms of the number of different partnerships that they're engaged in to be able to do that. So yeah, and I would just say, yeah, I just think you're going to, you're going to see assets deployed more flexibly um, in terms of what their role is within the captive value chain of the retailer and also more diversely in terms of figuring out what other value propositions we can bring to the table to provide a more holistic solution than the one than the relentless efficiency of one item at a time transaction driving that Amazon is excellent at. And that's where, so yes, I think you'll see, I think you'll see a significant reconfiguration of the assets that drive retail over the next five years. Yeah, I think DSW was one of the first retailers to follow the lead that you just indicated, which is using their stores as the distribution center rather than uh, rather than shipping from a central location. So sure. it depends on what works for the retailer. Yeah. Yeah, actually, I'll hold, uh, if you go back to Stop and Shop and the I'll hold food chains, they've been doing this. They've been using wear rooms in their back room to fulfill Peapod for, you know, 
probably longer than anybody cares to remember. But I mean, they they, they started that trend probably 15, 20 years ago. So, yeah. um, so. so Brian, a thing that has been very scary to me in this industry evolution is when I look at brand P&Ls having arguably touched some of the largest brands in the, in the world today is you referred, when I, when I asked you a previous question about supply chain ecosystems twisting and turning, you said no choice, but at the same time, you also said the muscle power of these supply chain ecosystems is really built on bulk repetitive production again and again and scale on day one. Yep. Innovation, because innovation today largely for scale brands is still a truckload delivery ecosystem. And if it doesn't meet the hurdle rates, you don't create it. But all of a sudden, if you're in a supply chain ecosystem, which start thinking about eaches, like, isn't that a PL twister? It is. And um, yeah, and I think the, um, I think there's a lot of questions that come into this, which again, you know, get to, you know, the second commandment on the tablet is not thou shalt only allocate capital to driving the lowest cost, lowest cost possible unit for the fewest number of things. Right. And I think this is one of the big questions that if you're the CEO of a company today, this is probably the thing I think you've got to be most focused on, which is teaching your board that the long-term survival of your business may require a more flexible capital base than the one that they grew up thinking was the definition of efficiency. So, you know, the way I sometimes put this to people is that I think the companies that are winning in the market today are the ones that understand that it's not just the optimization of capital that's the game, it's the allocation of it um, and how and how and where capital gets allocated is a big part of that conversation. Because, yeah, I think if you're if you're trying to optimize a P&L and you don't have the mechanical ability to walk and chew gum at the same time, you got a problem. And that's going to require a series of partnerships as a bridge to or towards just a, a different capital allocation model that builds flexible flexibility and responsiveness into mass production and, you know, high velocity. I mean, that's just, that's just where the world's going to end up going. And I think it, in the end, it probably does change the launch strategy for new products for a CPG company or a branded company in terms of, yeah, if you're going to go big, go big. I mean, you know, you know, go big or go, go big or go niche. I mean, a lot of what passes for innovation today is small ideas off big brands. And that's the part I think that gets really problematic. If you're going to devote your resource chain to massive blockbuster style innovations that can truly change a category globally and niche opportunities that spring up because you know something about a specific set of consumers and can sell something they really want. And so the big one for me on that one, Brian, was how you referred to capital allocation. And I'm not so sure many of the scale brands that I've, I've touched and I refer to have that formula still figured out, but that was a great last question for today's episode. Yeah. Well, I would just, uh, I would just encourage you before we sign off. It's just, this is one of the areas where, you know, you know, the board, board relationships here really matter. Um, and it's the experience set of the management team that regularly talks to the board because they're the ones in the end that are responsible, mostly responsible for deciding the pace of capital allocation versus other things you can do with surplus capital, like give it back to shareholders or buy back stock. Um, the, I would just say the simplest thing you can do to fix that is to look at the median age of people that talk to the board in a year and make a commitment to yourself to lower that by three or four years every year. 
get them different perspectives, get them people to viscerally understand that the world is moving in a different direction and can deliver that with both quantitative rigor and passion in a way that your board, who's probably 15, year old, 15 years old with your management team, uh, will understand and be able to shape capital allocation accordingly. Listen, Brian, thank you very much for joining us for this episode. It was extremely informative. Uh, I want to thank everybody for joining us for this. As we mentioned earlier, below here, you can see, follow us on YouTube and LinkedIn at hashtag Shri and PVSB. We also have a link to uh, our podcast where you can download this audio and also to uh, find all of the YouTube videos uh, in a playlist. So thank you very much. Next week, we'll be back with episode three, where we're going to talk about omnichannel transformation beyond Amazon with other retailers that are being driven by all sorts of new habits. So with that, Brian, thank you. Shri, appreciate you as always being with us and we look forward to seeing you for part three in the series, Living in an Omnichannel World, with special guest star, Brian Gildenberg. Thank you. Look Look forward to the next one. The content in this podcast episode is provided for general informational purposes only. By listening to our episode, you understand that no information contained in this episode should be construed as advice from CPG Guys LLC or the individual author, hosts, or guests, nor is it intended to be a substitute for research on any subject matter. Reference to any specific product or entity does not constitute an endorsement or recommendation by CPG Guys LLC. The views expressed by guests are their own, and their appearance on the program does not imply an endorsement of them or any entity they represent. The views expressed by CPG Guys LLC do not represent the views of their employers or the entity they represent. CPG Guys LLC expressly disclaims any and all liability or responsibility for any direct, indirect, incidental, special, consequential, or other damages arising out of any individual's use of, reference to, or inability to use this podcast or the information we present in this podcast.